What one primary duty must a trustee for a trust account fulfill? You can sum it up in one word, faithfulness. Faithfulness to the laws which govern trust accounts. Faithfulness to the plans and purposes of the one who appointed the trustee. Faithfulness to protect the assets of the trust account. And faithfulness to the terms of the trust account itself. The Bible says it this way. It is required of stewards, another word for trustees, that they be found faithful. The Bible provides many examples of people's faithfulness as well as God's faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 11 provides 20 such examples, including the declaration that without faith no one pleases God. Jesus wrote a letter to some first century believers in the city of Philadelphia and praised them for their faithfulness. Only one of two churches in Asia that he did not rebuke for their sinfulness. This letter is authored by Christ himself, and he sent it through the Apostle John. And he addressed the letter to the angel of the church, probably the pastor or at least the one spiritually in charge of that congregation. And the audience for the letter was not only the pastor, but the believers, the individual believers within that Christian congregation in Philadelphia, a city located in southwest Asia, now the territory claimed as Turkey. According to Unger's new Bible handbook, this city of Philadelphia was called the City of Brotherly Love, kind of like the same named city here in the United States of America, the city of Philadelphia. They call themselves the city of brotherly love. This area known as Southwest Asia at the time of this writing is now Turkey. This particular locality experienced over the years numerous earthquakes. In fact, it almost, they've almost completely destroyed the city. But it is still in existence, and there is still a group of believers in the city of Philadelphia, in Turkey, who worship Christ. Where do these events occur in redemptive history? Just a little brief summary of the era of the times. It was 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension back into the glorious presence of the Father. This letter gives to us part of Christ's self-revelation, a means by which we can know him, his existence, and his attributes. This letter also confirms Christ's victory over sin and death in the grave, for he is alive, and he wrote the letter through the Apostle John. This letter has several distinctives to it that I'll point out just as we go through the letter itself. It shows to us the relationship between Christ and believers, those who follow him, Christ followers. It describes and identifies Christ clearly as the Lord and a living God. It also describes for us Christ's faithfulness to his covenant that he made with believers. 
It provides promises of eternity with Christ for his followers. It also outlines some requirements, not only for those believers at the time of the writing, but for those of us who also claim Christ as our Lord and as our God. This letter was born out of Christ's love and care for those believers in Philadelphia. So let's turn our attention to this narrative as described for us in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I will take a moment to briefly read through this text, and then we will take a look at it as to what it tells the people in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, and he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold what is fast, what you have, and hope, and that no man may take your crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. We can see in the, just a brief reading of this text that the whole text describes for us various attributes of Christ listed throughout this whole section. It's also a very personal letter. It describes a living God attesting to his resurrection. And in fact, almost every verse gives to us some new revelation of the nature and attributes of Christ. So let's go down through the, the sequence as it occurs, as the narrative flows, starting with verse number 7. In verse number 7, we find some distinctives about the nature and attributes of Christ. It says, He is holy. Beale and Carson, well-known theologians of our day, describe this description of Christ as a rare usage of the term exactly. It is a term that was used by demons, believe it or not. As they came upon Christ and encountered him, they would describe him, and they described him in this fashion. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, You are the Holy One of God. In Luke 4:34, another demon accosted the Lord Jesus and said, You are the Holy One of God. That's the term here. Christ is identified and reveals himself as holy, speaking to his divinity and to his sinlessness, as two other well-known theologians, Lau and Nida, describe it. Then we 
find the verse, the word in the verse, true. He not only is holy, he is true. Another well-known scholar describes the, this word in this fashion. He's the real thing. He's not a phony. He's not a, a copy. He's not a simulation. He's the real deal. Genuine, very God, Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one. All that Christ taught and revealed about himself thus becomes true because he is the true and living God. Then we come to an interesting phrase. We read that um, in verse number 7, he has the key of David. Now what does that mean? Well, that makes reference back to the promises that God made to David, King David, Israel's famous king. The promises are described for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, in which God promised to David that one of his progeny, one of his offspring, would come along who would be a king, who would live upon his, who would live and upon his throne, and he would live on the throne of David forever. Well, who is that king? Who is that one that God promised to David? Well, again, our scholars be identify this as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it identifies here in this kind of unusual manner the kingship of Christ. He's a child of David. He's in David's line. That entitles him to the throne of David. And because of the eternality of Christ, he will sit upon that throne forever. He will rule as king forever. Then we also read something unusual in verse number 7. It says, I am the one who opens and no man shuts, and I shut and no man opens. Well, what does that describe for us about Christ? It tells us his absolute sovereignty, his rule and authority over all things. He has, he has dominion and authority over every rule, over every power, over every authority. No one can stop him from accomplishing his plans and purposes. We read in scriptures that God gave to Jesus, and it's described for us in Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, and then we read it again in Ephesians chapter 3, where Christ received from the Father when he ascended back up into the glories after his resurrection. God the Father gave to him all authority in heaven and earth and beneath the earth, in this age and in the age to come, over every rule, over every dominion, over every power. We see that he has absolute omnipotent power. No one can stop him from opening a door that he wants to open, and no one can prevent the closing of a door that he wants to close. It describes for us the absolute sovereign rule of King Jesus with absolute power and authority over all things. Then we come to verse number 8, and it starts out right at the beginning. It says, I know your works. Well, what does this tell us about Christ? It tells us about his personal relationship with the believers in Philadelphia. It also describes for us his omniscience. He knows all things. 
They could not hide anything from his purview and from his observance. It talks about his omnipresence, his ability to be there and in all places at the same time so that he knew exactly and intimately the behavior and the lives of these children of God in the city of Philadelphia. He says, I know. And it also identifies for us the fact that Christ is the judge. Because he, soon we will see, gives recognition and rewards. So we see again some unique explanation and description of the Lord Jesus and his character and nature. And then starting at the tail end of verse number 8, going down through verse number 9, the Lord Jesus recognizes the character and the quality of the believers in this congregation in Philadelphia. This happened at a very unusual time in history. This was approximately 70 AD. We know that during this time period, Roman emperors ruled and governed the then known world. They claimed deity. They demanded that everyone within their rule and authority would call them Lord. The emperors demanded deity worship. Well, this brought about great and severe persecution upon believers who rejected Roman emperor worship. They had one king, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the believers who refused to worship the emperor suffered severe persecution to the extent in some instances where they took believers fastened them to light posts poured fuel on them and lit them as torches to light the patios in the darkness in the city of Rome there was great conflict also between professed believers and true believers there were claims made by Jews who said, we are, the, we are the true Jews. You are false Jews. You are not Jews at all. You're Gentiles. You, you have no claim upon God or upon Christ the Messiah. There was a conflict between God versus government. Who should we follow? Should we follow the Roman powers and the Roman government or should we follow God? And what about our culture and the influence of culture upon believers in that day? It was very strong. And then there were those who professed to be believers who disagreed with some who wanted to follow Christ and reject the powers of Rome. Oh, there was great turmoil in that day. Great temptation to doubt. Temptation of materialism. I will lose everything if I reject Roman emperor power and deity. The temptation... Should I just claim Christ as only one God? And how will I live my Christian life in this world? Very difficult question, questions. And then there was the uncertainty of government, their rules and their persecution. Well, we read some very fine comments about these believers in Philadelphia. It says in verse number 8 that they kept his word. They kept the word of Christ and they followed him ardently. And they did not deny his name. They resisted the temptations of the culture and of government and uh, emperor rule. And they held fast to the word of God. They were faithful and they obeyed Christ in all things. 
And then we notice it also says, you did not deny my name. That's one thing to kind of follow the Lord privately, but then in public, they did not deny his name. They held to the name of Christ. Well-known follower of Christ in the recent history, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it in this way, he who believes obeys. He who obeys believes. The description of these believers in the city of Philadelphia, attesting to their faithfulness to Christ in the midst of trial and tribulation. Then we notice another interesting thing. We read in verse number 9 about something called the synagogue of Satan. And as you read this description, we find out that they contrasted with believers. They were sinful. They did not follow Christ. They did not separate unto God. They were separated from God. They did not worship God and they were not faithful to him. They were under the condemnation of God. They called themselves true believers. In our day and age, I use a phrase my father coined, I'm sure others have used it as well, call them professing believers. These Jews of the synagogue of Satan were professing believers. They were not true believers at all. In fact, one well-known scholar by the name of Dr. Linsky just flat out calls them unbelievers. They made professions of being the Son of God, but they were, in fact, liars. They were not true Jews. were not followers of Christ. Then we need another interesting statement here. It says, I will bring them to worship before your feet. At first glance, you might think, oh my, they're going to come and they're going to bow down and worship the believers in in the congregation in Philadelphia? No, that's not exactly what it means. What it's talking about here is these people who were of the synagogue of Satan were not believers. But Christ would turn them into believers. He would make them believers so that they would come and join together with these believers in the congregation in Philadelphia. The true believers, they would join with them and there would be a congregation then together of not only these Jews who were newly born again in Christ, whom he made true Jews, who he brought together to to this congregation. And that congregation also comprised of Gentiles from the city of Philadelphia. We see the fulfillment of the promise of God made to Abraham centuries before, in which he said that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, not just to the Jews, not just to the physical progeny of Abraham, but to all nations. And we see this fulfilled in this uh, statement here where it says that that the Lord Jesus would bring them into the congregation of the city in Philadelphia, those believers, and they would become true Jews. We read in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that there's a distinction between those who are physical Jews of the physical progeny of Abraham and those who are followers of Christ by faith. And it describes the distinction between them and says the true Jews are the ones 
who have the inward evidence of following and worshiping and believing upon Christ. So it gives to us here a distinction between the nature of mankind without Christ and those who are with Christ, believing and trusting in Christ. The natural condition of mankind is like those who were in the synagogue of Satan. They had rejected Christ, separated from God, helpless, unable, and enemies of God, in need of a Savior. We also see that with Christ making the say, I will make them to come, we see the work of Christ in salvation. It says, He says, I will make them. The work of salvation is not a joint effort between you and God. It is solely and exclusively the work of Christ, which he performs in the lives of sinners like you and me, and like the sinners here in the synagogue of Satan. He would work them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would give them new life. Now we come to verse number 10 talks about those who have kept his word. He's going to give them rewards. And there are some fantastic rewards that are mentioned here. Because of their obedience, because of their faithfulness, he says, a day is coming of great temptation. I will protect you from it. I will protect you from this great time of trial and tribulation that will come upon the earth. And I will protect you because you have remained faithful. You have kept my word. You have held fast to the things that I have taught and said. But what will he do? What are his rewards? Well, the first reward I mentioned is he'll protect them from the trial that is going to come. That's in verse number 10. I will also keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. God said, I will protect you and I will preserve you. And then we see further his explanation of his rewards for them. He says, no man will take your crown. Do you realize that in the scriptures there are over a hundred verses talking about the security of believer who trusts upon Christ? A reference tool called Open Bible declares there are a hundred different verses on the security of the believer who trusts upon Christ. Jesus himself said in John 10, 28, says, No man can pluck you out of my Father's hand. You're not to lose your crown, he promised them. There is security in Christ, and that encouraged these believers, knowing that they would face some difficult trials yet to come, but they would not lose. God would hold them safe. They were secure. No one will take your crown. And then we notice in verse number 12, it says, I'll make you a pillar. Well, what does that mean? Charles Simeon, one of the saints of old, describes an earthly practice common in this day, whereupon they would make monuments of honor to recognize personal achievements of well-known people. And it's a way of describing the reward for faithful believers. They would become a pillar in the temple of Christ. Recognition for faithfulness, permanence and honor to those who would believe and trust and hold fast to the word of God. 
Lenski, another well-known Bible scholar, describes it as an illustration of permanence, again of security in Christ. And you'll notice that it's going to, this pillar is going to take place in the New Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21 describes this New Jerusalem that would come down out of heaven. And there is going to be a celebration there of what is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where there is the marriage between the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who is the bridegroom, as described throughout Scripture, and the bride, which are believers in Christ. So here we have the new name given to us, given to those believers back in the city of Philadelphia for their faithfulness and holding fast to the word of God. This new Jerusalem will not be one that is something totally brand new, but is this earth reborn, remade, purified. Now why did Jesus send this letter to these believers in Philadelphia? Well, we've had a brief look at the circumstances of the letter and these believers certainly had some unusual needs facing difficulty and trial. And this text, this letter from the Lord Jesus identifies at least 10 different attributes of his that would come into play on behalf of the believers, gave reassurance to them, described him as true and holy, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence. There was the recognition of the believers that would encourage them, cause them to further trust the Lord, to renew their faithfulness. There was comfort of knowing that Christ would protect them during the coming trial and tribulation. And that these rewards would outlast all of their trials and difficulties, in fact, they would last for eternity. So we see from this text and this letter to the believers of the congregation in Philadelphia, faithfulness to Christ prevents the failure of Christian congregations and brings praise and blessing to them and enables them to thrive even in difficulty. Well, how does this correlate to you and me? It may sound like an interesting story, an interesting narrative, but you would say, oh, Tom, that was hundreds of years ago. What correlation does that have upon me? Well, this. All that was true then is true now. There are many similarities between our day and the day of this congregation in Philadelphia around 70 A.D., there is unrest in the world. There are many false gods who have risen, similar to the false gods of the emperor worship. We have a great common concept of the idolatry of government. Government will provide all of our answers. All we need is to trust our government. And the government, of course, works hard to intervene on behalf of people, but they are not gods. And then there are many believers who experience great persecution. There are people listening to this podcast 
in foreign lands, over 200 different foreign lands have listened and contacted these podcasts. And they face great persecution and difficulty. So we have many similar similarities between our day and that day. And then in addition to that, there are universal truths that this letter comments about. About the nature of God, those truths do not change. They exist and are true in our day. The demands upon Christians that God gave to them, we also must follow. Faithfulness to Christ, even in a time when doubt is popular. We must remember Christ's promises, not only to those believers, but they're the same promises that endure to us and to our benefit as well. Reward for faithfulness, promises for eternity, a new name, fellowship with Christ. So this correlation that we see between that era and our era causes us to examine ourselves. You may be a believer. You say, Tom, I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, I trust that you can fit the description of these believers in the congregation in Philadelphia. You follow Christ's message. You continue. You persevere. You're faithful. You do not deny his name. A reward awaits you for continued steadfastness and faithfulness. It's possible that as a believer, you might fall into the categories unfaithful. Maybe of recent days, doubts have crept into your mind and heart. You have not seen an, uh, an improvement in Christ, growth in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You'd be described as delayed obedience. You fall in the category that I would describe in need of spiritual revival. Repent from your sin. Turn from your unfaithfulness and disobedience to Christ. Renew your obedience and faithfulness to him. And hold fast as Christ encouraged these believers in the city of Philadelphia. It's possible that in listening to this podcast, you are not a believer. As we have gone through the descriptions here and, and the, the comments from the Lord Jesus to these believers and the distinction between believers and unbelievers and those of the synagogue of Satan, and you've come to the realization that you are really not a believer in Christ at all. In fact, you probably have no interest in him whatsoever. And maybe even never in all of your life have you ever given a thought to God or to the Lord Jesus or his demands upon you. You would definitely be described as unfaithful. A man by the name of Reverend Shelton, former pastor in Florida, has written 13 questions for unbelievers, people like you. Here's one of those questions. How will you walk in faithfulness to God and Christ when you are satisfied with a life of self-will, self-pleasing, self-confidence, and self-righteousness? Does that describe you? As an unbeliever, those terms do describe those who have not followed Christ. I want you to hear today God's word to you beginning with creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God created all things and spoke them into existence. 
all the world and all the things in it. During that creation, he formed Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden in Eden, gave them as trustees over creation. Remember our beginning about trustees and faithfulness? Sadly, Adam and Eve did not prove faithful as trustees. God gave them one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Because in the day that you do, dying, you will die. Adam and Eve, as described in Genesis chapter 3, disobeyed God. They ate of that fruit from the temptation of Satan in the form of a serpent. They disobeyed God in his command to them. Thus, their once holy nature now became sinful. And as the head of all humanity, the imputation of Adam's sin falls upon you and me. We proceed from Adam. His sin imputes upon us so that in Adam we sinned just as he did. All have sinned in Adam. We are separated from God by our sin and under the condemnation of God because of our sin. We are in enmity with God. We are helpless to change it. In fact, we have no desire for God or Christ. It gives indication of the necessity of divine intervention on your behalf. What did God do? Did he make provision for sinners like you and like me? Yes, he did. He made provision for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Upon the decree of God, he sent his Son to the earth in human form. He placed upon him the sin of people like you and like me, and decreed that the sacrifice of his Son would atone for the sin of sinners like you and me, and the sins of that he placed upon the Lord Jesus. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ and decreed, and decreed that he would accept all who turned from their sinful, self-righteous, and self-satisfying lives to believe in Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice on his or her behalf, and that he would forgive sin and reconcile them back to himself, making them children of God. Well, how's that going to happen? As a sinner, you and I stand before God helpless. We cannot do those things. We cannot bring ourselves even to accept Christ, even to trust him. We are enemies. Well, God shows the extent of his grace. He provides the Holy Spirit to unbelievers like you and me to regenerate us, give us new life from above, and gives to us the desire to turn from our sinful lives, and also gives to us the faith to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and to empower us to obey God. I pray that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will come to you today and give to you this new life from above, enabling you to turn from your sin and to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that this new life will come to you today.